we've talked a little bit about virtual reality in healthcare on the show recently. It's some fascinating technology with real opportunities to transform how things are done in healthcare. Much like a lot of innovation in healthcare, the conversations we've had about VR on the show to date have been with startups, scale-ups, nimble little companies in the industry that can move fast, experiment, and get an innovative solution to market. But do you know about some of the innovations happening from within the public setting? What are our LHDs, our local health districts, up to when it comes to innovative technology? Well, my guest today is from one of the many LHDs around the country who are not only utilising, but help creating and developing innovative technology for use in healthcare. I'm talking with Nathan Moore from Western Sydney Local Health District, right after the intro. Welcome to Talking Health Tech with Peter Birch, a podcast featuring conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. With me today is Nathan Moore. He's the lead for technology enhanced learning for the Research and Education Network of Western Sydney Local Health District. Prior to this appointment, he has helped establish and run the simulation service at Westmead Hospital for eight years with an ICU critical care background prior to that. He's currently completing a PhD with the University of Sydney, exploring the use of virtual reality in clinical education and has a master's degree in adult education. Hey, mate, how are you? Yeah, going well, thanks. Great to be here. Yeah, great to be able to chat on the show. We chat online a bit in the Talking Health Tech community and great to see you so actively engaged there. But I'm super stoked to be able to have you on the show and talk a bit more about what you do on a day-to-day and the kind of innovative, interesting things that you're doing with virtual reality, particularly from an LHD's perspective. So that's kind of cool. Look, help me set the scene firstly, Nathan. Tell us a bit about yourself. What's your background? Who's Nathan Moore? I'm a husband, I'm a dad of three young kids, 90s punk rock music tragic and vinyl collector and was a hardcore gamer when I had a bit more time on my hands, but um, that's settled down a little bit more now, but it's sort of set the scene for where, I, where I've got to now, which has is, is been quite useful. <laughs> that's awesome. And you've got a pretty sick set of headphones there as well. So that yeah. uh, <laughs> speaks to the gaming side. But look, tell us a bit about more about what you're doing with LHD, your current role and everything that comes together, because there's a few different moving parts and I'm interested in where you fit in the whole picture. I guess a, a little bit of background to sort of how it all came to be. So I was an intensive care nurse for quite a number of years. And then my transition to simulation learning was was a similar one of, of a very senior doctor said to my boss, hey, do you know anyone who's good at ALS and those computers? And so that kind of started me down the journey of, of simulation. And we, we helped to get that established. And then, yeah, I've been teaching simulation-based learning for quite a number of years now and really grown that into an amazing service with a lot of astounding clinicians who donate a lot of their time with doing that, obviously, like like any educational modality, as as we've gone on, we've identified where it fits really well, and but then also some of the limitations of it. And so, about probably eighteen months to two years ago, we'd been talking about some of the challenges we face when doing delivering something called advanced life support training. So this is when you move beyond sort of doing CPR and you move into giving the medications and defibrillation and things like that. And we deliver a lot of advanced life support training because it's evolved to be one of those situations that's that's low frequency yet very high stakes and so i think really powerful educational modalities find a good way of taking those those infrequent events and providing people with a realistic way to practice them and prepare for them because we expect them to perform at a high standard when that thing occurs now one of the challenges with traditional simulation based learning which is very powerful and we know it meets a lot of needs is it's very resource intensive and when it comes to the actual face-to-face course, we have people performing teams of sort of seven or eight 
people and we, we run through these scenarios and we get to debrief afterwards. And what we find was traditionally we were focusing on a lot of these sort of technical things, you know, specific drug doses, defibrillation cycles, rhythm interpretation, those sorts of things, all of which is information that could possibly be taught earlier or, or learned earlier to allow us to really focus on that, those, those teamwork and communication elements when we've got that face-to-face -face team there, when we can actually put everybody in the same room. And so sort of got us thinking, a company came to chat to us about using VR in another setting. And we realized that ALS potentially was a, was a good space where if we could build a training tool that people could, it was portable, that they could take it and practice prior to coming to the course, practice some of that algorithmic learning and real-time application of drug doses and things like that, that maybe they could be better equipped, just a different way of getting that pre-learning done before they came. Maybe we could make better use of the face-to-face -face time that we have. And that was the start of the journey. So um, that was where ALS Sim VR came from. And, and we're still running with that at the moment and a whole bunch of other projects. But that sort of got us to the point where we went, hang on a minute, this is something we can possibly start to develop ourselves because the technology is evolving and there's lots of companies playing in the space, but there's lots of little niche areas and just finding the right tool that fits in the right space and does exactly what you need. That's something that we'd sort of just been trying to work out what exactly do we need to make this work better. And there was something for it being developed by clinicians. Our team was teaching this actively. So working with the right um, industry partners to get it developed. And um, yeah, it's been, been a really great journey. And then, yeah, the research and education network saw the success we had with that. And essentially we've said, is this something you'd like to continue to work in moving forward? And they've really backed us. And now, now we have a number of projects, which I'm sure we'll get to talk about. But that was kind of the journey that, that sort of got us there, was sort of opportunistic, as well as just identifying, you know, right space, right time when the technology could do what we needed and having been given the time and scope to really look into it. Yeah, that's so cool. And if I've understood this right, is it like the Research and Education Network is almost, so it's a separate arm of, but still part of the local health district. But it's like yeah. it's got your own little kind of incubator kind of startup-y vibe within like the larger LHD that's happening there? Yeah, the Research and Education Network is enormous. They look after the clinical trials and all of it. Yeah, it's an enormous part of the district. But this innovation part, so we've looked after education for a long time from a district perspective, um, area programs and things like that. But this innovation part is something that they are supporting and is growing and is really at the early stages now. And we're not sure where it's going to go and, and how it's all going to look, but they've actively supported us and resourced us in doing that. And I think we're getting some really good output resulting from that. It's great that there's a active focus on innovation then. and uh, Absolutely. There's always an area that is moving. So having some resources there to be able to focus and grow with it is great. Fascinated about how you've come in to learn about virtual reality, not on the fly, but just gradually and progressively as the idea is evolved. So how did you go about learning virtual reality for those that want to get you know more into it? Yeah, yeah, of course. The first project we got there, that was uh, so Martin Brown working with um, the University of Sydney, that's the Westmead Innovative Technology Steering Group. They got us in touch with a company called Frameless Interactive, who are uh, VR developers. And Russell and their team are just, they're amazing people and they know this inside and out. They've been working in the space for a long time. So there's been lots of automatic learning from that, I must say. I'm the thorn in his side of asking him, can we do this? And he goes, not yet, but I'll work it out sort of deal. But then there is also just, I've really found it's an amazing community. I must say, Pete, yourself, the community you've grown here has, has been amazing. Just being out on LinkedIn, uh, things like that, you know, once you start to link VR in your tags and put a few comments out there, it's amazing the people who just jump in and want to talk to you about stuff and 
you know, every other day someone's hosting a talk about a new headset, a new device coming. We're trailblazing in some ways, but there's also been a lot of work that's been done before and there's just a really nice community out there. And again, I don't have any specific places because I know a lot of it is still emerging and, and a little bit niche in, in certain places, but the community itself is very forthcoming and open to discuss and plan. And they, a lot of the times I just want this stuff in people's hands so we can start to build a culture and just get clinicians and other people familiar with this process. And I think that's a key part of it. And it's something in the last sort of 18 months, I've, I've learned a ton just from getting out there, talking about it and people come and talk back. It's great. <laughs> yeah. Just on that point about getting, you know, headsets in people's hands and the implementation side of things, how have you gone about the whole process of taking an innovative idea and then actually executing it and delivering it? What's been the thoughts behind that? Yeah, no, it's been quite a journey actually. And um, I must say COVID did throw a spanner in the works with a lot of it. We, um, so we, the ALS MVR project I mentioned earlier, we, we had ethics approval and we were good to go. We had headsets ready to be deployed uh, to all the clinicians and rightfully so there were concerns raised about the infection control implications of, you know, shared headsets and what is cleaning processes and things like that. But just further speaking to that community, what was amazing was I reached out to some colleagues from the Clinical Excellence Commission who are like the state body advising public health in what they should do. And we said, you know, we've had these concerns raised and we think this is going to be a this is a really useful approach, a useful modality for education, particularly for times when, you know, we can't be getting together for face-to-face training. They helped it. We, we developed in conjunction with them the first state guidelines for the cleaning and disinfection of head-mounted displays. So again, it just spoke to that community of people who are passionate about what the potential of this is. I mean, yeah, we still got a way to go with that, but that was just, that was a, a hurdle I sort of hadn't predicted, but we were able to come across to get over just because of that community. I guess the other part... And it's nice is, actually just on yeah, that... No, no, sorry interrupt. I really like that too, because I think with someone like a local health district going through that process and kind of coming up to those hurdles that everyone does around regulatory or policy and everything, it then sometimes helps pave the way for others that like establishes those processes and the protocols and gets the precedent down pat for then more innovation to come through the industry. So I think that's great that, you know, you've been able to do some of that trailblazing, I guess, and or at least come across those hurdles like everyone else and then start to put in ways to put the groundworks for others to build on. So that's kind of cool. Absolutely. And and even more to the point of just at, at being a, at a high level as well, we, you know, we're clinicians and educators are renowned for coming up with a solution that fixes their space but but often these things are contained in the hospital or in the ward or in the district but actually focusing our attention to go you know what there's a lot of people looking at doing stuff like this let's let's work through it and having a state body who are so they were amazing throughout the whole process I can speak more highly of them the whole infection prevention control team there and they got it out to their community of practice for feedback and yeah within a matter of weeks we had this which you know if I'd been trying to do it with a local thing doesn't have the same spread and oh, I was it was a really great experience but back to the actual deployment I guess so we're still in the midst of it to be brutally honest we've got the policies we've got the cleaning I was ready we have got that ethics approved we're getting ready to deploy again but we've because of the iterative nature of all of this we've got some new functionality we're putting in as we speak it's literally being programmed at the moment. So we haven't deployed with the ALS stuff yet. But I guess the big part that I've come across in planning the logistics is just being aware of 
what the clin- what the needs are of the staff you're going to, you know, whether, whether it's from the design phase all the way through to the deployment phase. I mean, the first publication we did for the PhD was, you know, what are the user needs when designing VR for clinical education? You know, what are the things nurses and doctors actually want out of this technology and out of applications built for the technology? So this is not something you just throw at people and say, here, use it. Like, you know, talk to them, find out exactly what they need from it. Thinking about how you're actually going to bring other people on board because there is, there is a technology learning curve I mean, really good designed applications should be seamless and straightforward, but actually learning virtual reality for a lot of clinicians has has been an interesting challenge. And just, you know, the idea that you're in a three-dimensional space that you can turn around and look up and down and left and right. And like those things were new for a lot of people. Um, one surprise one that I, I hadn't even predicted was the, the rollout of the new Quest 2 headset. So our original... Um, deployment set was going to be on on the Quest One, and then COVID hit, and we had to go back to the drawing board and get all these other things sorted. And then when we were ready to go, we had other partner sites had reached out and said, "We'd love to be a part of this. Can we pilot it? We really want to try the application." Absolutely. But at the time, they deployed the Quest Two headset, which meant we could no like you you couldn't actually buy a Quest One, which was the only which was the hardware we were designed to run on. So we had these new sites who said they wanted to do it, but they couldn't buy the equipment to to use our software. So, you know, just when you're working with your developers, you know, having that scalability and have that idea that, you know, we need to work multi-device or, or at least be able to deport to it quite quickly. That was a big surprise for us. Having, and again, there's limitations to tethered versus untethered headsets and things, but actually having something that is affordable for an environment and obviously there are applications that are going to run better with tethered headsets and require that processing but you know the difference between setting up a number of gaming rigs in a in a ward or something with tethered headsets as opposed to a standalone which has a $600 entry point that you could put in that space that could be used and borrowed by people and just thinking uh, that's just an example but you know thinking about what are the actual logistics of, of getting this out there getting it in the hands of the people I want to use it and you know the use case I've got for them what does it need to be able to do to do that so for me with ALS it was pe- clinicians to take it home and practice in their own time where they wanted and that's a lot more feasible for a standalone headset than a gaming rig or something whereas you may have other use cases which are going to be classed based and then yeah maybe you can work with your simulation team or an educational space where you have systems set up with laptops and tethered pcs and all of that yeah i mean virtual reality is something that always i think about i see it as almost a little bit daunting sometimes around the implementation side because you've got not only the tech and the training side of things and the utilizing it it's a familiar but unfamiliar kind of process for individuals to be part of but also the logistics around moving like kit around and having hardware and that can sometimes be a barrier there you know as you're keeping across all of the different innovations within vr generally I'm going to hazard a guess and say that that's becoming more and more accessible now, the the hardware and the headsets and all of that, that's becoming a bit more simpler? Absolutely. Literally in the time I've been on this journey, the kind of last two years or so, the changes and what's what's possible it has been amazing. But they've obviously been doing this for years and years, decades. Uh, VR's been around, but price point is really hitting somewhere now where this is actually truly accessible stuff. And, you know, where you've got consumer headsets that are standalone for 600 bucks, um, you know, you mm-hmm. can, this becomes something that people can start to engage with a lot more easily. And, you know, it's, it's not saying it's nothing, but in the scheme of things, 
things, you know, $110,000 simulation mannequins and things, if we can start to do some of those things in these headsets once, obviously development costs and all of that are there, but those are decreasing as well over time. I mean, even from when we started, just seeing, you know, the groundwork that's been laid, the things that are available as plugins now that weren't before, you know, essentially with all of this, you know, money is time. And, and as there's more tools and plugins and things available, it takes less time to get to those same points. And as such, the, the costs of development start to decrease. So yeah, it, it's definitely getting a lot more accessible and, and yeah, usable, but yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, tell me more about the future of VR. Like what is this going to be, whether it's in healthcare or generally, what can we look forward to when it comes to the use of VR in healthcare? I think at least, I mean, there's still a lot of hurdles to be overcome. A lot of our healthcare training is very tactile, very much haptics-based, the feel, the touch, the, the movement and things like that. And I, I think in VR, we really do have a long way to go till we get to that. I think in, in the future, VR is going to be a really powerful supplemental tool. Uh, and it may start to reduce time for pre-work and things like that and then preparations and learning processes and procedures. And I think it's going to fit that space really nicely for a while to come. My, my prediction and goals, and you know, we've already started to discuss this, you know, once we have a nice ecosystem of there are plenty of applications working on, on shared hardware, if you're a medical student, maybe down the line, a headset will be one of your purchases because there's a, rather than textbooks and things like that, which obviously there's still going to be needs for those things too, but maybe this becomes one of the assets that travels with you through your clinical experience um, because there is enough content on there to sort of justify that. And really all the projects that we're working through, we have that in mind. Is it can't, it's not okay to say to award budget, you know, you need to buy this headset, this headset, this headset, and this one to run on these different things saying, you know, this is a, this is, if you buy 10 of these for your staff to be rotated through, we know we can clean them and process them. We know that these 10 applications are now available for it. That's a lot more of an attractive proposal to an environment, you know. So finding things that have this sort of shared ecosystem, that have content that meets its need well. It's not just technology for technology's sake, you know. This is a this is an emerging modality and just making sure that we are we are targeting the right things with VR because when we do that, I think we'll start to see outcomes come from that. And and there is there's, there's emerging research and stuff coming now. Um, in the middle of trying to work through a lit review for the PhD and it's it's enormous the amount of stuff going out there and we're going to have these really nice evidence bases in the near future and you know what works well and what doesn't um, but I, I think that for me is, is the future of seeing these sort of supplemental and refresher tools you know you still have your clinical exposure you still have your facilitated education and, and that might be facilitated in a shared VR experience as well and you know you've had Brad, Brad on here before was talking about some of those shared environments and, and the collaborative VR. And I think there's really something to be said for that, you know, rural and remote areas where you can't have those same facilitator ratios, some really powerful use cases in there as well. But I think the, yeah, the, the future for me and the part is just making sure we're targeting VR in the right spaces for the right use cases. As a full scale educational process for people from, you know, pre through actual training, through refresher training. And I think it has spaces that can fit into all of those. You've touched on the PhD really briefly. You're doing a PhD in virtual reality in clinical education. That's pretty like bang on to what you're doing right now, man. So that's, yeah, well, that's pretty well, good. Look, to, yeah. to be honest, the, the PhD came as part of this work. I had a bunch of colleagues from UCID and the district and everything who said, you know, what you're doing, you're already researching this. Nathan, pull your finger out and do a PhD on it because we were researching <laughs> it anyway. So bring it all together. But that's still emerging. I mean, when I started it, it was really looking at the ALS application. But what's, what's become more valuable? 
valuable to me now as all of these projects have grown is looking at it a bit more broadly, um, which is challenging in a PhD as well. But, you know, looking at what are the requirements for successful deployment and development of VR in, in clinical education. And rather than just looking at it through that single application lens I had before, it is sort of broadening out a bit more now. Very cool. And I know a lot of members of the community or generally listeners of the show would be interested to know more about that whole dynamic between how this whole came about, which we talked about earlier, with the LHDs and the unis and industry partners and everyone kind of working together. How has that whole process gone generally or are there things that could be done better somewhere to help facilitate more of that? Yeah, What's been really powerful is that just the the small group we started with, we were all supported by our executive and and managers and stuff, and and they had faith in what we were doing, and we were allowed to just kind of get on and do it, and and that's been fantastic. We've got the support of, yeah, high-up executive from, from both major institutions, and finding the right industry partners has been vital as well, and so Frameless have been amazing developers for us in growing this. And I've seen similar partnerships happen in other spaces, and it is all dependent on that the link between the industry, the development, and the, the education or research body. And I've seen that work really successfully. Tafe New South Wales do some amazing stuff. Joe Millwood, out of those guys, they, they have a really nice structure out there of how they can do that. And so the support, you know, IP things are in place from the beginning. So our, our intellectual property guys, there's a there was an umbrella agreement between them. And, and what's been really nice is this was never viewed as a money-making venture, which has been really great for us. Like this is truly we want to get this education out there and quite I don't don't want to say it's naive of me but altruistically of me perhaps like really just wanting to get it out there and and so the nature of our development has been really great you know finding support from the LHD financially the university finding other industry bodies are actually interested in what we're doing Um, you know there's great state insurance regulatory authority have given us funding from some of our projects Um, Zoll Medical one of the largest defibrillator companies in the world they were interested in the ALS product we're, we're getting and we've put a familiarization of their defibs into it because that's something we spend a lot of time showing people how to use the defibs. And they came along and they said, we want to support you doing this because we think it'll be valuable for us, but it's also valuable for our program. We were just successful getting the Unreal Epic Mega Grant. So the actual gaming engine we build on is, is the Unreal Engine. Uh, that's, that's what our program's all designed on. And they... They put out a, a large grant and said, you know, if people can use this engine in, in um, education, healthcare, we want to support that and we're successful in getting it. So it's been great finding those pools that sort of not no strings attached, but able to just get out there and it's not... Obviously, these things take money to build and to continue and to scale and to sustain. But because that hasn't been a primary focus of any of our projects, it's really allowed us to just get on and, and, and do it and... Yeah. And you haven't got that pressure of a PE or a VC or someone saying, you know, we need 10x of growth in two or three years. Not that every VC and PE is like that, but that's one less that's front of mind. That's awesome. Yeah. Tell us a bit more about other innovations that are coming out if you wanted to go over them briefly, like outside of VR. What else is happening within the LHD? Yeah, so I mean, just I mean, you said outside of VR as well, but I mean, a, a lot of where we've gotten to 
at this stage have been just the VR stuff has naturally progressed because we're already working in the space. Um, so things like for, for code black, so aggression minimization was very topical and we've, we've sort of got into that, but not just from the developing educational tools, but actually working with them and our clinical expertise as well, working with the emergency departments in looking at their responses and helping design education outside, you know, with a simulation space and other modalities, not just in VR, but developing that in parallel with the VR um, offerings that we're coming up with, looking at some of the clin- the communication tools and, and we've got some stuff around the idea of body swapping, you know, handover and breaking bad news and dignity in the workplace of this idea of being able to have an interaction with somebody and then swap shoes with them and see what that interaction is like. So yeah, practicing those different skills where you're imparting a piece of information or interacting in some way, getting the other person's perspective. So we're in the early stage of experimenting with that, which is really exciting. That would freak me out then being in that position to actually receive my own kind of feedback. I don't know if I'd want to do yeah, that. Yeah, well, look, it, it, <laughs> it, it can be confronting, I must say. Um, it is a really interesting idea. And we get it, you know, even in simulation, video playback, um, the video reflexology that's that's out there, like it's, it's shown to be a powerful tool. Um, we're still seeing there's, there's some other people who've done this sort of stuff in VR before, but we have a lot of evidence around the use of simulation and people seeing their own playback. So it can be quite confronting and it has to be used in the right context and right setting for the right purpose because you're right it can be really confronting for people you know just get caught up in oh that's what I sound like or that's what I look like those sorts of things the irony that this is me after 121 episodes of the podcast <laughs> saying that I'm not do, sure do you listen to that, yourself that's afterwards that's <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> no, no, yeah. no, no, no. Never heard it before. But um, yeah, I mean, there's a, there are other things coming outside of VR as well. So looking at the way we use data is one of the big things. And again, early stages and, and like everything, this is going to evolve and looking, you know, we have a lot more EMR systems and things and starting to ask questions about, you know, how we, how we use that data, how we learn from that data. And there's already got a few meetings have just started to be discussed at the moment about that. Um, how we, how we support um, innovative technologies, but not, not just from that idea of digital digital literacy with our staff and educators and things, but that idea of digital fluency so they can start creating in those spaces too. We've done relatively well in getting people to be familiar with the technologies out there, but actually how they can start to create and start to use them themselves and start to think a bit outside the box and, and come up with those ideas as well. So there's, there's a large body of work on around that. And I guess also just the infrastructure side of things as well is really important. You know, we've sort of had meetings with our... Um, ITS and, and, you know, what are the requirements about, you know, having a digitally enabled spaces and, you know, that it's really, it needs to be so safe and secure for EMR type settings and things like that. We've got patient information, but, you know, what are the, what are the standalone parts on the side, you know, VLANs for VR headsets and, and whatever it is, you know, we, we want, we need to have these sandboxes of the EMR systems in place that we can use for simulation so you can recreate those environments and just, you know, these other bits on the side to those systems, you know, it does, they do what they do really well in in the clinical setting, but it's just building on those extra parts that'll enable us to get more creative in what we're doing and preparing and practicing and things like that. Lots of just really exciting stuff all the time. No, it's fan- it's fascinating hearing the detail too and the understanding the intricacies and it's great to talk holistically and at a big picture around VR, but there's a lot of like, I love the, the doing conversations that we have on this show. So I appreciate you, you know, providing some of that perspective. Speaking of the doing, then taking the perspective of some of the younger guys and girls that are listening to the podcast or, the, or those that are young at heart and then looking at getting across more of the technology that's available within healthcare from a general sense. Are there any useful resources or places or information you'd provide about that for 
Um, I, I, I will just touch really briefly on the age comment there. One of the best bits of feedback I got in our initial study was from a really senior anaesthetist who, who came through our application and brought to the point that I hadn't really considered, because we're talking a lot about self-directed learning, they were discussing the value for senior clinicians of being able to practice some of these things that might seem to be lower level algorithmic knowledge, but it's the stuff they don't get to practice. But when you do it in like a simulation setting or in a group setting, can be quite a power differential from senior versus junior, but equally there's a lot on stake for the seniors who may not have looked at those algorithms or, or worked through them. So actually having, so was really interested in engaging with the technology because it was a, an effective way of having that self-directed learning where they could practice without the pressures of the other people around to just practice on some of those more minutia things that they, they, they know it on such a higher level and they have such a wealth of knowledge around their, their siloed skill sets, but actually being able to do this as a self-directed thing, but, but equally right, you know, there's a, there's such varying technology literacy out there and it's something that we have to acknowledge and, and engage with, you know, how we can help people to, to better connect with these technologies. Um, but yeah, back, back to the question about actually how they can engage, to be honest, um, I'm still, I'm still exploring that myself. I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of really great journals out there that are, that are publishing this space, you know, um, JMIR, Journal of Medical Internet Research. Um, the, the, the LinkedIn thing is, I can't tell you how powerful that is. Like just the people who've reached out to me and the discussions I've had and, you know, groups, um, talk to your local educators. You know, if you, if you're a new doctor and you're interested in this space, like find your educators, find your simulation service. Um, there's, there's this sort of synergy between the two, I think when it comes to working in VR, um, what, one of the, one of the really cool discussions I've been having recently is, you know, what are you designing? Is it a simulator? Or is it a trainer? And that's the differences in those things in VR as well. Um, because they just have different requirements in the background and what they're going to be doing. Um, but yeah, just, just reach out to those educators because I, I, I'm yet to come across somebody in this space who wasn't willing to have a chat about it and just direct me to various cool little resources out there or, or a podcast coming up or a conference, you know, the conference circuits kind of got smashed with COVID recently. But again, there's, there's, there's plenty of people doing stuff out there and just, yeah, reach out and people are willing to talk. Just put yourself out there is the best advice I'd give you. Amazing. That's good advice, Nathan. Thank you. Look, I'll, I'll put some details of uh, some of those resources that you've talked about throughout this episode in the show notes from this episode and onto the website too, so people can check it out when they're on their computer. So look, Nathan, all the best with what you're doing. Good luck with all the innovations and the PhD that you're working on too, and chat with you more in the community. Thank you very much. Sounds good, mate. Thanks a lot for having me. Thanks for listening to the show. Check out TalkingHealthTech.com to connect with other people in our community and to learn more about the Australian health tech industry. Also, make sure you hit subscribe on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode and share this episode with a few people who need to hear it. Now go make it happen. <laughs>